Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ Radio. We're also available beyond the FM dial. You can listen to us online at radionorthland.org. You can also check out some of the archival episodes of the past few years of Wrestling Memories in Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Tune in is also a good place to catch us live and in the moment, too. Thank you so much for joining us here. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my co-host, my partner in crime, way down there deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, is he... Uh, I, do I is this true? You're in the uh, the home studio today, or no no mobile this week, uh, Mike McCurdy? I, I I am in the home studio this week. Wow, wow that that must mean one thing. Uh, at the time of this taping, uh, the kids must be uh, getting some education. Yes, the kids are getting their education and everything else. So yeah, no, Dad gets to work in the home studio today instead of sitting out in the mobile studio, but. Even outside, it's not that it's not that hot. Today. Well, this time of year uh, down there it should be pretty, pretty bearable. It's actually pretty reasonable here. We don't see a lot of snow on the ground, and which is okay because we get it for like eight other months of the year. So can't complain. And uh, yeah, good to have you back. Uh, you're out on assignment. Yeah, we took a cup. We uh, took some time off. You know, got to have a little break once in a while here in uh, the land of uh, radio. But we're back and ready to roll, Mike. It's good to good to have you. But you you went out and did some uh, recruiting as you always do. I did, I did. I went on and did some recruiting and all that and, uh, you know, got today's guest. And then we also have a guest upcoming that I'm working on that I think the listeners are going to enjoy. But before we get started today, though, Glenn, um, yeah, kind of on a, on a sad note, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, today is the, you know, the 10th. Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, day before we lost another, uh, another gentleman, another, you know, wrestler in the ring, uh, Stephen Dane passed away uh, Wednesday, December 9th. It was announced by his wife on Facebook and all that. So we lost Stephen Dane uh, just recently, yesterday. So wow. I just want to offer my condolences to, you know, family and friends. Because, you know, I'm working with Chaz Taylor on a project. And he messaged me at like 6 a.m. in the morning with it. And just it was devastating to get the news. Because I had just talked to Steve um, a couple weeks prior about uh, working with us on this project. And I was supposed to talk to him and Chaz together again after the holidays. And unfortunately, that's not going to happen. No, it's unfortunate. And yeah, relatively a young man. I mean, he still had a lot of lot of great years ahead of him. What, he, what was he in his what mid fifties or what, what was his age, Mike? I I have not seen that. I would say in his fifties. Um, I guess he, from what I have heard, he may have been in hospital due to a fall. I heard he had some broken ribs, but I do know that from what I said, he did pass away in his sleep. So oh. I mean, if if there's a good way to go, that's probably the best one. Absolutely. Steve Casey, uh, Stephen Dane, of course, we know him as Steve Casey as well, uh, down in the Dallas, Texas uh, area. And he also worked uh, for, a, for a cup of coffee in the NWA uh, for, for a while there in, what, 1989? Uh, I'm just going off the top of my head. He worked, uh, got, got over for a few matches, but basically was putting over the bigger uh, bigger stars of uh, of that company mm-hmm. at the time. But uh, it was always in good condition. Had a pretty deal. Was it world class where he had the feud? Was it the feud with Eric Embry or who was the feud? I remember him in a feud. I'm this is all off the top of my head here. No no aid of the internet. Um, he did a feud with Eric Embry um, yeah. in the late 80s. And then, like you said, NWA, uh, late 80s, before going on to Global, uh, Global Wrestling yeah. Federation, which came after world class. Which of course is where the uh, the famous bungee cord match between him and Chaz Taylor that you know a lot of people you know remember uh, happened. He was also a tag team champions with, uh, with with Chaz as a result of the bungee cord match. Interesting, interesting stuff. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, coming out the gate here, we're remembering now the you know, Stephen Dane who passed away here. But we're also going to be celebrating uh, on this edition the life of, of Pat Patterson and to help us remember and help us uh, and share some memories of his. 
is a very esteemed pro wrestling mind, a historian. Uh, oh, man, he's done some great uh, pieces. He's a photographer. He's been many years shooting uh, uh, pro wrestling matches up and down, uh, you know, the West Coast and even over in the East Coast. He's it, it, We've had him on before, and it's always good to have him on because he's a wealth of knowledge. And we're going to share some memories of Pat Patterson today. Uh, Mr. Oh, actually, I shouldn't say Mr. Dr. Mike Leno. Uh, welcome back to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Good afternoon, sir. Actually, I'm just looking at, uh, and I've actually been a magazine photographer, having shot all over the globe uh, since 66, but uh, uh, Stephen Dane, who was uh, Scott Casey's brother, won the tag straps in Global with Chaz Taylor beating Guido Falcone and Alex Porto September 3rd of 93. So I'm obviously looking on, online to recall uh, Stephen Dane. Uh, the couple of times I was in there for the GWF. So this is the GWF guy's that uh, was this the one that this was not the uh, Joe Pettacino no, it was, by Eddie that was kind of that was a uh, Pettacino and those guys had been long past this was kind of towards the uh, end of, um, of the run uh, in Dallas for global so it was kind of the post Pettacino era right, yeah right. Pettacino was the first couple of years then Gray Pearson came in yeah, I remember right that kid that uh, what was his name he was like 14 years Brandon old, Baxter yeah, he was. Yeah, Brandon Baxter was very good. Yeah, I was in there a couple of times. Iceman was in there, and uh, uh, yeah. But Pat Patterson, I actually worked with him when he came from the San Francisco office, which was my secondary home base, shooting for the ringside program. Uh, and it was weird, a, a venue that spectacular and historic. They had no ringside photographers, so I was always going up for all of Roy's bigger shows. But I also worked with him in the LA office, which was my primary the Mike LaBelle office, my primary um, uh, home base where I was shooting with other photographers. I wasn't the sole guy like in San Francisco for all of Roy's Battle Royals. And Pat, interestingly enough, won and came back to rescue Shire, his very last show, which was his annual Battle Royal, the biggest show of the year for him every January. There was only an 18-man, whereas in uh, Los Angeles, like the same year Shire started his, we followed with a 22-man to try to up the game a little bit. And uh, Kenny Mantell, obviously all the history he had in uh, uh, both with Bill Watts and in particular uh, with Fritz in World Class and stuff, he was in many of those battle royals because we went from an annual one and LaBelle started getting greedy and started having two uh, from about 1976 on. So we'd have a summer one and then the January one, whereas Roy kept true to the vision and his shows were big, the January Battle Royals, because he often had guys going in or out of Japan who would just do one-shots. And, on, for example, the last three, or excuse me, the last two, he had like five NWA champs or former ones on, on both of those last two Battle Royals. For example, uh, the very last one. Uh, and Roy, because these guys wanted to go to the airport and were doing him a favor, we had the Battle Royal on as the opening match, which is insane. Most promotions like Vern Gagne's AWA or LaBelle or WWF, when they finally allowed Battle Royals, it would be the main event, the last thing on the show. So uh, for these, we had, or for the very last, I think it was January 82, 14th of 82, Battle Royal was first and it had uh, Harley, both Funks, Dusty, and Kaniski as did the year before, but in the main event, the last match of the card, very last match of Shire's career, Harley defended the NWA strap against Pat, who was counted out, and um, Pat was the Battle Royal winner in the opening match. 
didn't win, but that was his only challenge for the NWA, the, the real NWA strap. You know, we have an NWA now that's fantastic, but that's not really the NWA of, of my period or, or Michael's that he studied, etc. And, you know, you talked about the Battle Royals in, in San Francisco. And, you know, uh, it's kind of funny because, like, you know, later on, Pat Patterson became so well known as uh, being the architect of what became the w- one of the big WWE signature pay-per-views, uh, which was originally a television special for USA Television, uh, the Royal Rumble. Uh, did Pat, was it there working for Shire that, that Pat got to, uh, I guess, start to form what became the foundation of what, you know, his creative mind brought to pro wrestling. Was there, was Shire very open uh, to the idea of, of, of having someone like, like a Pat give, give input. And, and what was that? I mean, that must've been some sort of process because you talked Shire was the, the big dog, the promoter to let Pat to, to get in some insight from him. That must've been a pretty big thing, not only for Pat, but for Shire uh, bending just a little bit. I had, conversations with Pat many, many times, for example, like at the very first Russell reunion, uh, Russell Con, I, I think the, the high spots one, the very first one was in Tampa in 2005. I was hired and flown in as a photographer by Gary Jester, who kind of worked with, uh, you know, pretty much everybody. Um, most notably NWA, WCW. Now I think he's with impact. Uh, but, um, Nick Bachman and I were having lunch. It was, so it was a two day, two or three day deal, like Friday through Sunday. And Nick and I were having lunch and we decided, hey, you know, Pat and Heenan live nearby and um, we invited them to come. They never did these sort of things, but, you know, and, and we're sort of reluctant to come to MarkFest, but we uh, picked them up and brought them there. But in the car, as many times I did with other stuff, like at uh, uh, Indie Fan Fest in Northern California and, and other stuff in L.A., other when Russell Khan came in there three years in a row, 2010 to 2012, I'd pick Pat's brain, and A, obviously the Royal Rumble concept came from Pat being in not just the, the unique San Francisco one, but also some several Los Angeles battle royals. Uh, but he said that you know, if you wanted to call him a genius or whatever, his creative mind blossomed as he would always cite Bill Watts with having worked with Shire, with Vern Gagne, Vince Sr., and Eddie Graham. Pat, had, a lot of people don't even recall, way before he even went to try WF Vince McMahon Sr., uh, he spent X amount of time uh, there in Florida with Eddie Graham, who's one, arguably one of the great geniuses. So all of these people he called... He'd ask questions. He'd have some input. Um, but he was helping, you know, before, and Michael may know this uh, as well, Roy was doing most of his booking. He was like Vern Gagne in terms of being a yeller, screamer at the boys in the back, which caused, actually, I think his first co-booker, Frankie Kane, great Mephisto, to quit and famously slap Roy in the face on the way out. And he took the guy that was doing the program for Roy, who was my original boss, Victor Berry, before Alan Bolte in the San Francisco office with him. But then Pat sort of helped uh, from that point on to 76. So Pat started working for Roy. Pepper Martin referred him in from the Oregon, Portland, Don Owen territory in 66, saying, hey, this kid has a good mind. He looks like a young Ray Stevens. You could pair them up and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so Pat was in that office, the San Francisco Shire office, pretty much exclusively after turning uh, face in 1970, 71, for 10 whole years, and then was fired 
for somebody he, he doesn't cite as being a wrestling genius or great mind at all. But Pat always said he was like a siphon to sponge. He would pick up and... Uh, but the Royal Rumble came primarily from the San Francisco office. He had tons of input, and he had tons of times where he would just let Roy, who was a former wrestling great in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, primarily the 50s, as Professor Roy Shire, let him speak and absorb from him. So Roy in 76 had already had Pat drop the, his lead title, his U.S. championship, to Mr. Fuji, I believe it was. And then a couple of months later, Pat accepted some work uh, for Shire, who's having a, for Mike LaBelle, who's having kind of a rivalry with Roy up north in Northern California. So Pat comes down, but Mike LaBelle advertises him in Los Angeles for this Olympic Auditorium match as U.S. champion, defending against, of all people, Mr. Fuji. Now, the U.S. title had never, uh, to my knowledge, ever, at least certainly not from 66 on, had ever been defended in L.A. So when Shire found out that Pat was being advertised as he fired Pat, and, and then the hilarious thing was only to have Pat return a couple of times, particularly for his very last show in 1980, January of 81 or 82. Uh, I'd have to look that up. Uh, but to, to bail out and really have Pat's, or excuse me, Roy Shire's last card as this spectacular, uh, which is why Pat you know, got the main event and won the opening match of Battle Royal. Um, because uh, Vern Gagne was already utilizing them for the last few years. Pat and Ray together, who was another expatriate, who had heat with, with Roy Shire, that being Ray Stevens, who was the first guy, first king of San Francisco before Pat Patterson. But then, and I'm winding this up. Uh, so when Roy is doing his very last battle royal, he started you know, really requesting and putting pressure and begging Vern Gagne to send him both Ray and Pat. Now, Ray, who Roy Shire had bailed out, uh, on paying his taxes, you know, a couple of times for years, Ray Stevens was infamous for not paying his taxes, and Roy, a couple of times, the government, the feds would show up at the Cow Palace right before a main event where Ray was in the main event, and say they were going to take him to jail and blah blah blah, and Roy would whip out the money or the checkbook and and pay uh, the IRS stuff for him. So I'm not sure what the heat was. I didn't get the chance to ask Ray, who I, I've been around a ton too. Uh, why he refused to come in and work for Roy on his very last Battle Royal show. But Pat, who didn't, wasn't really up for that, but he said, yeah, I'll go in there. He said this to Ganya, who was then his promoter in the AWA. Oh, yeah, I'll go in and, you know, for his last card and help him out. But he did it reluctantly. But still, he always, you, you know, up until when I last talked to Pat a couple of months ago, always cited Roy Shire as his main genius and Eddie Graham's second. So that's where he got it. He purposely, purposely was doing that to try to build his wrestling mind, where a lot of workers don't always get into the nuts and bolts or get in you know, as part of a booking committee or get to see that process. Maybe they, they, this was in the old days. They're not at all interested. Pat certainly was one of those guys like Bill Watts who was. Mm-hmm. And you know, for you know, you talked about you know Pat saying something in reference to being a sponge, you know, and and taking and gleaning this knowledge from all of these guys like your Shires. Uh, you know, the thing is, Pat was always a bit of a sponge for everything because you know when he he debuted in Montreal, you know, in the late 1950s, he ended up in the United States. He emigrated uh, to the U.S. to begin his professional wrestling career. 
he really didn't uh, have too uh, firm of a grasp yet of the English language. He was kind of a, a fish out of water, but he went at it and he he built from it, and and from there he he kept um, you know plugging along. But I think a guy just not being able to fully speak the language and finding his way through pro wrestling on top of that. And also dealing with uh, his, you know, at the time, because everything was a bit of a secret as far as his sexuality, he had a lot of those things going in, too. So, I mean, this was a guy that was really, really driven uh, not only to be a success in wrestling, but, I mean, to overcome some of these obstacles, like not being able to speak English right away. Yeah, well, he used to sneak into, uh, you know, the matches or ask to... uh help carry bags and stuff for the boys so he could get in. And then once he brought the bags in for the boys and was allowed in, he'd just, you know, zoom down and go watch the matches for free because he didn't have uh, any money. And, and then later on, of course, getting paid like 50 cents at the time, equivalent to, to the U.S., uh, to work. But the uh, here's the thing. Most of the boys in the offices that he worked at, even before he showed up in Portland, he had a stint in Amarillo where uh, he was doing kind of a gay effeminate act, and he did that in Portland, and that's when Pepper Martin spotted him. And Pepper Martin is of note because, you know, he was a tremendous wrestler who went on to become an actor in a lot of movies, uh, like How the West Was Won, etc., became a producer, director, screenwriter. Um, he's still alive. He's battling eye cancer. He lives near me in, in Hollywood. Uh, but... He was the very first, this being Pepper Martin, the very first guy doing color commentary. And he was doing it for not one but two territories. Again, I'm going to San Francisco and L.A. He was doing those in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and then in Los Angeles, Ripper Collins was added as a third guy. So it was Dick Lane, tremendous actor, but also our lead play-by-play guy. Pepper Martin, and then Ripper Collins doing a, a way early, and this is, uh, late 72, early 73, he'll act that Jesse Ventura would, you know, follow up with later. And I know Pat saw all of this stuff, too. Pat was responsible. You saw an influx of a lot of former Shire guys, all Pat compatriots, uh, to the Tri-WF, Vince McMahon Sr., late 70s, early 80s, from Peter Mavia to, uh, oh, gosh, Jimmy Snuka, Ray Stevens, who got a bone, Don Morocco, who helped, uh, Pat helped him out, formulate his uh, or finesse his healing in both San Francisco and, and Florida for Eddie Graham. And then uh, Fuji had left in senior. There had been some heat or something like that, and Pat put in the good word. And you notice a, a guy who, you know, whenever he wrestled in the U.S., he was primarily in San Francisco or L.A., that being Masa Saito, Mr. Saito. Oh, yes. And uh, Fuji was paired with him, and they were tag champs for Vince Senior. So there was, I'm probably forgetting somebody, but there, and Buddy Rose, there's a wealth of these San Francisco Shire guys in particular that Pat, you know, it was able to get the year of Vince Sr. and have them come in, and they had tremendous success. I mean, Peter Mavia, for example, Rocky Johnson, just huge. Pat and Rocky were amongst the greatest Roy Shire tag champs I ever saw. They had tremendous matches that went legit 40 minutes uh, with uh, Shibuya and Saido. This is in San Francisco, gosh, 72, 73. And, uh, you know, that is why, uh, sort of a sidebar, Pat took such an interest in Dwayne, who we all saw as a little, you know, teeny baby that uh, Otto would bring to the matches. And um, that being the wife of Rocky Johnson, the daughter of uh, uh, Leah and Peter Mavia. And in Smoky Ma- or excuse me, OVW, 
I was there when Pat was there a couple of times, and then we had a Cauliflower Alley reunion in 95, in, also in Tampa, and Pat continually said, this guy isn't going to just be a wrestling star, this guy's going to be a movie and TV star. And, you know, I, a lot of us would just laugh it off and say, well, you know, whatever. We, we didn't see it. Pat did. So what a visionary there. But he took great pains. I have some great photos of him uh, going over matches backstage with uh, Rock and uh, uh, the rest of that crew, including Mark Henry, you know, where they're looking at uh, a spec sheet, you know, of what, what was going to be happening, and they're discussing it, and Pat is telling them what to do. And so I, I think Pat saw him as sort of like a son, that being Dwayne Johnson. And, man, just look at the, all the stuff that Dwayne has done. And I know uh, he would thank besides his dad, he would thank his mom and Pat Patterson. Pat was like a second dad to him. We're talking with Dr. Mike Lano, remembering the life and career of Pat Patterson. And you mentioned uh, Pat was re- uh, referred to some of the great minds of pro wrestling, and uh, one of which was Eddie Graham. Can you talk about uh, the time uh, Patterson uh, wrestled, worked for Eddie down in Tampa for uh, championship wrestling from florida promotion how that all came about and uh some of the experiences he had down in florida for and it, it left such an indelible mark on him as far as remembering the way eddie ran uh, his his company well eddie was a, a known everybody knew eddie was a great mind from the 70s on um there were others uh plus he was you know honest and and fair uh and there weren't that many guys like that. There was Munchnik and uh, one of Bob Geigel's partners in Kansas City that, that Pat would talk about. He never did get to work there, wanted to, or at least wanted to come into Kansas City. Um, but uh, I don't know how, that part I don't know. I don't know how he came to Florida. He spent a good deal of time in Los Angeles after Roy fired him. He just stayed down there. And he would come down and do shots maybe once a year, come down for some of the Battle Royals. He had two great matches with Ed Carpentier, who uh, I think tried to get him into the St. Louis office because Ed went there from L.A. Carpentier spent about eight months, 74 to 75, with us in L.A. And Pat came down, worked in our um, Battle Royal in 74, excuse me, 75, January 75, with Ed Carpentier, two Montreal guys. And they had probably, that was one of the greatest matches I ever saw Pat in a singles have was against Carpani. There were two. There was a rematch, both for our area, Los Angeles, America's title. Uh, I'm not sure who referred Pat or how he got to Florida. I mean, I remember shooting a couple of matches he had, like with Mosquers there. So I think the entirety of his stint was as a heel. And it wasn't a real long time, but because from there he went to uh, uh, the AWA for Gagne. And then uh, I'm trying to ask some of the expert historians there uh, that know a little bit more how Pat debuted. I, I don't think, in fact, I know Heenan wasn't put on him immediately. That came about when Stevens and he started teaming you know, very quickly, uh, although they wouldn't use their initial uh, mid-60s tag name of the Atomic Blondes. They didn't use that in the AWA, but Heenan was paired with them. So he had three guys who could talk, and Heenan could take bumps, according to Pat, better than he could. Uh, which is what Bachwinkle and, and some other guys in that whole uh, clique always said uh, about Heenan. Um, Pat, um, there was quite a few guys in that office all jostling for power and stuff like that, and I think that's why Pat didn't feel super comfortable, but he, 
he did want to learn and, and pry as much out of Eddie Graham and guys like Hiro Matsuda and folks like that. And he uh, he did say one of the, the guys he really, really wanted to meet and enjoy and see his professionalism and uh, was Gordon Soley, too. Not, not a booking mind, but uh, still one of those people that we knew, even if you didn't know anything, you knew from the uh, magazines oh, and yeah. stuff. Gordon Soley was the top guy, as was Lance Russell in Tennessee. Uh, you, you didn't have too many of these territories with guys because you had people bitching and moaning about Ed Whalen in Calgary. Or my overall boss, I didn't have to report to Mike LaBelle. I reported to his brother Gene LaBelle and Jeff Walton. And, and Gene, you know, super, super nice guy, great guy, fantastic uh, Judo, this and that, was a dojo trainer for Inoki's New Japan, where Pat spent some time, I think, to, uh, because Pat spent a bunch of time for Inoki in the 70s. That might have also uh, been part of the Florida thing. Now, I'm trying to think about it, because when Inoki started New Japan December of 72, a little bit earlier than Baba started All Japan, he um, immediately went for guys that could give himself credibility, and he picked Fez and Carl Gotch, which is about as great as you can get. And then, you know, more guys started to follow, uh, some who had already worked for Baba or, or Jap- JPW, the original Ricky Dozan promotion, where Inoki and Baba both came from and then went their separate ways. And Pat would come in there a little bit later, I think after Tiger Jeet Singh Sr. And the funny thing, you know, only in wrestling was... Mike Liddell and Shaw were advertising and talking about this sort of bogus international global tournament for $50,000 in the summer of 74. And it was basically sort of a, a New Japan Inoki thing with his then number two guy, Seiji Sakaguchi, two great, fantastic wrestlers, but they were running the office and guys like Chosu were kind of green boys. Uh, you know, they weren't quite fully established at that point. And uh, so they they have what is supposed to be the culmination of this global international months-long tournament in L.A. at the Olympic Auditorium. And Johnny Powers from Ohio, who, had, who was holding the NWF strap, who dropped it to Inoki, uh, actually in Japan, and that became what we know as the IWGP World Championship for New Japan now. But they... They claimed, this is Mike LaBelle in New Japan, that Pat Patterson and Johnny Powers were also the NWF World Tag Champions, and they'd never paired up once. Pat had never appeared in Powers' territory, which is Ohio, and then parts of New York like Buffalo, Mm -hmm. in partnership with Pedro Martinez. So they come in there, and and they they paid quite a bit of money to get Powers' title, because the NWF was kind of folding. And so Pat and Johnny Powers drop these titles that they have never held before, never partnered before, yet they're being billed as champions to Inoki and Sakaguchi, who then take the straps away. And then for no reason at all, as if it was some kind of feud, they had Joe Lewis as ref for that tag match, which made no sense to any of us in the office. But New Japan was paying the bills, so Michael Bell took the money and, and put that on. And it's actually a terrific card, because that was the night Pampero Furpo who is a dear friend of Pat's from the Honolulu days. There's another thing, and now that even jogs it, another person that probably got the word in for Florida was Sammy Steamboat, no relation to Ricky. Mm-hmm. Sammy Steamboat, who was a longtime uh, great talent in Honolulu for Ed Francis and Lord Blears, yeah. 
and then became a total legend once he moved to Florida, and he was very close to Hiro Matsuda. So I think that might have been, the more I think about it, some of these stories come up that a Steamboat had put in the uh, the word for Pat to go to Florida. But it was kind of a short stint, mm -hmm. and uh, we haven't even gone into Pat's history, which was tremendous, uh, in Honolulu at the HIC, the Honolulu International Center. That's how we all fondly remembered it in the 70s. It's now called Blaisdale. Uh, after the Pearl Harbor uh, thing, I think that's the name of the ship or something, or one of the generals. But uh, you know, it lost a lot of its luster when it changed the name. That was probably the most spectacular. I know I'm going sidebar here. Oh, no worries. Probably the most spectacular venue I'd ever been to, at least for a setting for wrestling, because mm -hmm. both the heels and faces, they came down separate aisles, you know, 180 degrees apart, but they all wore these fantastic flower lays. In terms of color, and pageantry and stuff, and flowers in the ring like in Japan. Uh, Honolulu was it. And Pat and Ray often had six mans with Fred Blassie there, as they did a couple oh, yeah. of times in San Francisco. If you can imagine those guys, Pat, Ray, and Fred Blassie as a heel, just out of this world. And um, Pat had tons, tons of matches. That's where he met Peter Mavia and a very young Don Morocco, who he helped come into the U.S. first to... Uh, uh, Portland and then the AWA and, and mm -hmm. finally Florida and uh, and actually prior to that San Francisco. So mm -hmm. uh, that's about all I know. I know uh, Pat wasn't elevated too much. He had uh, some matches uh, trying to help elevate Mike Graham and Kevin Sullivan and and folks like that uh, there and Steve Kern. Um, you know, he, he wasn't typically a main event guy. Uh, uh, I, I know he had a couple of matches which were kind of interesting, paired with Billy Graham. Once he got to try WF, you know, that just seemed to be where uh, uh, Pat kind of blew up. And uh, mm -hmm. I was sending out to a lot of my editors and, and people like Bertrand E. Bear, who wrote Pat Patterson's book with him. Uh, I uh, scanned the New York Times obituary from yesterday. Headline was, you know, wrestling's first guy to... Uh, come out of the closet was sort of the headline. And a lot of us kind of, you know, geez, is that how you're going to remember Pat? And the fact that there were some other guys, maybe not as famous, but uh, or, what was that guy's name? Orlando Jordan. And then there was the guy, Canyon from WCW, Chris Canyon, who mm -hmm. sadly committed suicide. He had a rough life, but he was also in WWE or F for a time after WCW folded and was bought out. And, and those two guys had come out. Um, you know, but Pat on a, a global scale, certainly. But, geez, Pat was way more than his, his being gay and living his life the way he wanted to. And that was the funny thing, too, was the My Way Sinatra song. I don't know how many cauliflower alleys uh, in the early to mid-2000s he would sing that at the very end of our three-day reunion. And then even at these tiny fan fests and at high spots and stuff, he just asked for the mic, He'd have somebody play a CD of the Sinatra music, and he'd sing my way at all of those events. So I've got a jillion shots of Pat over the years. And even one, he hit a hole in one uh, when I was with him, photographing him and Teddy DiBiase Sr. playing golf, and he, and he started singing some of that on the golf course. So <laughs> he, when his partner in life, and then I'm, I'm going to shut up. I know I've been uh, doing a monologue here. Louis Dandero passed away, Pat was, you know, they'd been together over 40 years. And Pat was at odds with himself. He kept saying, you know, what am I going to do in this great big house? He started taking cruises. So when he wasn't doing stuff for Vince and coming in for the more important TVs and pay-per-views, 
he was taking cruise after cruise all over the world just to get away. And he said, I found my calling. It's doing karaoke. He cut, I think it was at least four tracks, a CD, and I have several copies buried somewhere in a moving box, mm-hmm. uh, doing that. And they were all Sinatra songs plus uh, What a Wonderful World, the Louis Armstrong. I don't know who wrote that one. Uh, but that was not a Sinatra song, but that was on there, too. So I think there were six uh, total tracks on the CD that Pat cut. But, you know, there there you go. I'm sorry if I went off topic there. Oh, no, no, not at all. We enjoy hearing this. Uh, I mean, I just sat back and it really just kind of absorbed it all in. Another guy has been sitting back. Uh, we're going to let him into the conversation here. I'm, it's uh, his segment of the program, uh, the Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy. And, Mike, uh, I know you have a grip of questions here for the good doctor. I, I might have I might have one or two. Uh, Mike, I'd like to talk about, you know, when Pat came into uh, the Roy Shires territory, I also worked with you, say, with LaBelle. Um, is there anything I've read about it? Because I don't, most of what I know about Pat's career, obviously, is what you saw in the WWF. I remember as a kid seeing some of his stuff, like the boot camp match with Sergeant Slaughter uh, when I was younger. But uh, as far as his California days and his Roy Shires, that's kind of where he broke out that's where he became you know a star that's where his name got known what do you remember when you first met uh when you first met pat what was you know how did how did he come how did he come to you and you know what are your memories of when you first met him he was kind of a practical joker and the uh, that was kind of it you know i asked him to, to pose uh for i said for japan and for the program and he goes who the, who the hell are you because I was like the, there was no photographer, at least in San Francisco, which is where I first met him, uh, at ringside. I was kind of it. And the guy that took over when um, Frankie came, great Mephisto, who was Shire's then U.S. champion and lead heel, doing a chic gimmick, uh, walked out and left and slapped Roy in the face, was over, you know, mon- monetary disagreement. Um, Alan Bolte then took over. Alan Bolte was the ring announcer for Roy Shire at all the venues, particularly the Cow Palace, the Crown Jewel. But there were all these other towns that Roy promoted, and Pat obviously made it in it in all of them. Oakland Kaiser Center, uh, San Jose Civic Auditorium, Sacramento Municipal Auditorium, Modesto Stockton when Roy was promoting in Reno, uh, et cetera. And um, so, so anyway, at the Cow Palace, nobody ever went backstage to take pictures of the guys, and I was able to, to do that. And so Pat just said, you know, who, who are you? And so once I told him who I was, and he goes, oh, it's not this kid. How are you, this young, taking pictures and blah, blah, blah. So he, he was interested, too, in the, you know, was able to spiel off a lot of stuff and ask him about the territories because my goal since I was a little kid as a photographer, was to hit all of the territories and go to Mexico and shoot in Japan and Canada and obviously in Europe and uh, Australia, wherever countries allowed pro wrestling. The only one I didn't hit was the Philippines where pro wrestling was allowed, or India. But Pat loved talking about that and was a student of the game, so we kind of bonded over talking about stuff like that. And then I would always sort of kind of warn him about Mike LaBelle in that office but he'd already been there. And, and here's something, uh, Michael, I, I think, because Michael and I have known each other many years, and um, I think I may have talked to you about the war, and this involves Pat, when Vern Gagne tried to come into L.A. in 68, 69, and, and 
he partnered with Jack Kent Cook, who owned the L.A. Lakers and the L.A. Kings hockey team, and he owned the Fabulous Forum, which was a much more spectacular, newer, larger venue that looked like Pat's Cow Palace in comparison to the Olympic Auditorium, which was built for the what the 1932 Olympics. So it had been there as a 10,000 seater, whereas the Cow Palace held, you know, way more. Particularly when Shire illegally had standing room only, it could hold up to like 14,700, uh, even though it wasn't supposed to be uh, cordon like that. But uh, so there were only three Ganya shows, and um, against, and they ran on Saturday nights, whereas LaBelle would run the night before. And LaBelle was like all nervous. This was similar to Vince McMahon much later in 75 when Eddie Einhorn was doing the IWA, which was running against both the Tri-WF and the NWA. So uh, Sam Munchnik got all of these other promoters around the country to send talent. And the very first show uh, that was called Save Our Sports by Mike LaBelle, SOS, which is hilarious because this guy's got a monopoly and you know he's just making money and that's all this was about you know with somebody uh invading his territory and why Ganya did that i've never gotten a straight answer from greg or Vern. you know what was the point i think uh, jack kent could put the offer out there hey you know why don't you come in here we'll start putting your tv on in los angeles which the awa had never had tv in la before so again we're talking 68 early 69 so the first Mega card with all this talent who'd never been to LA at all. The opening match that Shire sent down was Pat and Ray against uh, King Curtis Iaka and Don Leo Jonathan. And I know it's trite to say this, but that thing could have been a main event anywhere in the world with those names and the caliber of stuff that Ray and Pat were doing. They were sort of like the Young Bucks then, just doing the most athletic stuff. And you look at Ray Stevens, or excuse me, you look at Ric Flair. And he had so much Ray Stevens in him. All that stuff he's doing, the bump over the turnbuckle, that's all Ray Stevens from the 60s. Pretty much all of, not all, but a lot of Flair's repertoire. And he'll openly say that, and even some from Pat. So you had that, and, and Pat was studying all of that stuff. And I remember he spent X amount of time you know, with Munchnik, too, uh, who he'd not met. He'd never come out to a Roy Shire card. But... You know, that spectacular on top was uh, Dory Jr., the recent, you know, who's fairly new NWA champion, defending against a heel Fred Blassie. That was the thing on top. And then there was uh, the first of two Neil Moskers, Black Gordman hair versus mass matches. But that opener, everybody was talking about that. And also uh, LaBelle's biggest claim to fame, his L.A. Outdoor Coliseum spectacular, you know, months and months of genius booking, which Pat loved hearing about how this thing was done, what Michael Bell was doing on TV, having Fred sell this eye injury where John Tolis blinded him with uh, ring doctor Bernhard Schwartz Monsell's power, this power used to stop bleeding in boxers primarily, you know, through what was supposed to be, and it was just baby powder, but he threw what they said on TV was Monsell's powder in uh, March of 71, and they carried that out. They had Fred filmed in a hospital with doctors around him and patches over his eyes and doctors saying he was going to lose his eyesight. So Pat wanted to hear about all that. So that was the main event of that Coliseum show. But Pat was on the undercard, I think, against Paul DeMarco, both of them sent down by Shire, of that outdoor Coliseum event, which, again, Pat would study. He would get in gorilla. He was watching matches. And everywhere I saw him, no matter where I photographed him, whether it was even at the, you know, the later Tri-WS stuff or AWA matches, 
Pat was at Gorilla always watching and studying and, and seeing what guys were doing in the ring and being part of uh, booking meetings and, and stuff, just hearing about it, even if he didn't contribute stuff. A lot of the time he was asked, hey, what would Shire do in a case like this? Long and short of it, initially, like with most wrestlers of that renown, you know, they, they're kind of skeptical of who the F are you kid, but then later on, you know, it, God, I, I've been friends with him for decades. I'm 40-something years old, and I still get the who the F are you kid from some of the Texas guys around here, so I, I, I can understand that one. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm uh, apologize for interrupting and, and being so uh, so verbal. I don't know how long it's been since I've been on the show, but you know, Michael and I talk a lot by email and stuff about things going on and uh, the Hall of Fame there and, and everything. Yes, unfortunately, that's closed down right now due to COVID. So I don't even think it's appointment only right now, which is unfortunate. But um, one thing I'd like to ask about, Mike, you might have been witness to some of these. Uh, Bruce Pritchard had, uh, he had his podcast this past weekend where he talked about Pat and, you know, his ribs and the jokes that the man liked to play. And he had some great stories to tell one about Howard Finkel and a Super Bowl party where Pat sent out a mimograph to like all the WWF office staff, including like the cleaning people and everything, inviting him to Howard's Super Bowl party and RSVP with Howard. Of course, Finkel knew nothing about this. Um, yeah. So obviously, and you said, you know, Pat had a great sense of humor with a great river. Do you have any stories, any like of those you can share about Pat? Cause I mean, we all know how great he was in the ring. Obviously him and Ray Stevens considered probably one of the greatest tag teams of all time, but you know, outside of the ring, do you have any like, you know, the, the, the rib stories you could tell that might be suitable for Sunday at noon after church? Oh, yeah. Well, geez, <laughs> after church, that might be difficult. When yeah, people, yeah, yeah. I've been on a number of shows talking about Pat, but people forget what incredible matches they had first because, uh, well, they were paired as a tag team, that's true, as heels. And then when they broke apart, they had years and years of incredible four- to five-star matches against one another. And that needs to be remembered with you know, these two guys, the guy that looks like Ray Stevens' younger brother, and then they're starting to feud. Uh, particularly when Ray turned face and Pat was still heel. It was amazing. And then even, um, you know, towards the end when they'd come and bail out uh, Shire in San Francisco before Ray had his, his heat with Roy, they would be brought in, you know, sometimes they'd just come in from the AWA as a tag team. But when Vern Gagne came in to promote after Roy uh, quit the business and exposed the business to the L.A. Times newspaper, I don't know why he didn't do that to the San Francisco Chronicle, but he, he knew that Vince and Vern were coming in to San Francisco in 81 and 82 to start running against each other. And so for uh, Vern's first show, he did manage to have Pat and Ray team up. But So these guys, they'd get you know, hero's response. And then the only time uh, Pat, uh, was able to challenge for the uh, the AWA title, and this was in uh, because Vern was running the Oakland Coliseum Arena, the Oakland Arena, and uh, Vince pretty much had exclusivity on the Cow Palace once Shire retired. And uh, so, even though Pat was a heel on all the AWA TV, Pat challenged Nick Bockwinkel, one of his longtime best friends, uh, for the AWA title. I'm getting to the ribs. Vern had. Prior to that, had uh, Hogan challenged Bockwinkle at the Oakland Arena, and Hogan did not get the sellout or the audio audible response that Pat did. The place went out of their minds to see a babyface Pat Patterson go against heel Bockwinkle with Heenan, 
who Pat bloodied up. And if you want to see my photos of that, they're in uh, both Enan's autobiographies. There were a slew of my photos in that, and even some of the photos that, you know, the they were credited as uh, courtesy fam- Heenan family photos. Those were mine that I gave Bobby over the years. But Pat, that was one of the bloodiest I'd ever seen Heenan, and I shot him in Indianapolis a couple of times uh, working for Bruiser's Territory where he'd bleed buckets. So here we are to the ribs. At an LIWA uh, Mula and May Young Women's Legends Convention, I won't because I have three ribs to tell, so I'll be brief. I'll try to be brief. Uh, our then Cauliflower Alley Club president came in. This this was an annual thing that Moolah and May had in the 90s, early to mid-90s uh, in Vegas. And anyway, they were going to honor Akira Hokuto, Hokuto and Bull Nakano, who they brought in, you know, because Moolah uh, kind of set the precedence for what we'd later see with CAC. She had a, like a three-day thing, convention, fan fest, and a wrestling show where all the wrestlers were expected to just work for free. So Hukuda and Nakano uh, worked a match with Mool and May. You know, they carried the two older legends. But anyway, so those, those Japanese legends, their moms, and a contingent from all Japan women are in the front row at our awards banquet for Mool's thing that I was on the board of. And anyway, uh, Red Bastine, our then Cauliflower Alley Club president, is speaking you know, there wasn't really a podium, and he's standing up there with a polo shirt and black Zubas on. You know, it was kind of informal. And he and Pat had been, you know, drinking quite a bit. And Fred Blassie was there and came in with the, then with the WWF's big boss man. So, you know, there are quite a few notable guys there. And Buddy Rogers' uh, widow, so I think this was 94, Debbie Rogers. And Pat goes up behind Red, who's standing like feet away from Akira Hokuda, Bull Nakano, their moms, all these kind of, I won't say uptight Japanese people, uh, you know, executives from all Japan women, but they were kind of uptight. And Pat pants and just pulls down, you know, Red didn't know he was behind him, pulls his pants down, not knowing the underpants would go too. So here's Red and all his shortcomings, naked for about five seconds. I snapped some pictures of it. In front of these women, they all gasped. Now, all the American lady wrestlers, including a young Joni Lauer, later be known as China, and Brittany Brown, and Brandy Alexander, and, oh gosh, legends like Mae Weston, and Betty Clark, uh, and, or Donna Christiantello, who was a famous Moolah's tag team champion in the 70s. They're all cracking up. The Japanese women are all freaking out. That, 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 you have to experience that. And, uh, well, it was it was pretty hilarious. At a uh, Cauliflower Alley club, it was either Cauliflower Alley or a uh, Seattle Dean Silverstone uh, weekend, Pat is drinking his favorite drink at the time. So this was maybe 97, a Cosmopolitan, which he used to call his Sex in the City drink because the lead character, Sarah Jessica Parker, was drinking Cosmos on that thing. So Pat is drinking them, and they're kind of a you know an out there, very bright red drink, and Sputnik Monroe, total legend who worked hard to get black fans in Tennessee and I think other uh, territories to be allowed to mingle with white audiences instead of being stuck in the cheap, crappy seats. Uh, so Sputnik, you know, was very instrumental and, and helped, you know, during a Jim Crow horrific racist period of, of wrestling. But um, he said something like, oh, what are you doing with that frou-frou drink? 
And so about five minutes later, Pat came over and poured one of his Cosmos on top of Sputnik's head. Now, Sputnik loved Pat. Instead of getting upset, he just said, he pulls out his catheter. He goes, too bad, you should have poured it in here, you know, so he could have, have had some booze. Another rib was, uh, the last one was from Honolulu. And, um, gosh, it had, there was Pat Ray and Bockwinkle, and, and I think even Heenan was involved. And this was when roller derby, famous roller derby, which is sort of like pro wrestling on skates, uh, had a uh, they had an international tour. They just come back from Japan. They had uh, one of their uh, or they had a show in Honolulu, an outdoor show. Uh, and anyway, so Ann Calvella, who was like the moolah of roller derby, she'd skated before she died. She'd skated in seven decades and was one of the greatest heels. And she was somebody on my old TV show who co-hosted for years, along with uh, one of Roy Shire's heel managers, Gary Gerhard Kaiser. So anyway. Uh, Ray and Best, or see, Red Bastine, Ray, Bockwinkle, and Heenan uh, convinced Ann. Well, they they got Pat. I don't know. They put a, some kind of sleep drug, not a Mickey, but I forget what it was, in Pat's drink, and he was knocked out. So they put him to bed, and they told Calvello to get in bed with him. And so Pat wakes up the next morning, and he sees this girl in his bed with him and he started screaming. And so later on, you know, forever he would tell that story. And I'm, I know I'm not doing it justice the way Pat or Ray Stevens could, but he'd say, and that was the story. The only time I ever slept with a woman. Wow. <laughs> That's, a <good> <laughs> That's a good one. So, you know, kind of, and that tells you, even though we had a lot of racism, you know, wrestling, even to this day, although it's vastly improved. But back then, the 60s and 70s, there was still a lot of racism, depending on the territory. Like in some territories, I won't name them, you had a black match where maybe the resident black wrestler who lived in the area would face the black guy they brought in, but only they would wrestle against each other. They wouldn't have a black guy or a white guy um, wrestle, which was nuts, but that was what was going on. We had Jim Crow, so we had a lot of racism and stuff, but... That was the thing that struck me about Pat, particularly in the San Francisco, Portland, and um, L.A. offices. The boys accepted him. They didn't care. You know, the promoters kind of had a problem with it. And Roy Shire would later say on my own little TV show, I think it was 93, that he claimed he had his first heart attack when he found out Pat was gay. And I told that to Stevens and, and Pat, and they said, oh, that that's BS. But you know, And then that's why... Uh, Shire was claiming he fired Pat, which wasn't true. He fired him over, um, you know, being billed as U.S. champ, which was so hypocritical because not even two years later, uh, for some reason, his then U.S. champ, you know, I think he had like two title reigns. Mr. Fuji, I think quit, from what I'm told, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, he quit on Shire. It was over money. And he didn't show up the night of a title, but he gave Shire like 12 hours. So he didn't show up when he was supposed to defend his U.S. title on a Saturday night Cow Palace Spectacular. So Shire calls up LaBelle, and he actually, the guy he called was uh, Art Williams, who worked for Mike LaBelle in our office. Really fantastic guy. And he says, you've you got to help me. Can you send up Tanaka? Now, Toru Tanaka, who was the longtime partner of Mr. Fuji for Vince Sr., they were three times Tri-WF Tag Team Champions, all with different managers, Albano, Blassie, and the Grand Wiz, Ernie Roth, he, he said, can you send him up? Can you send him up? Because I don't have uh, Fuji. So Shire sends him out there with the belt on him, with a hood on, a mask, 
claiming and having it announced to the fans that that was Mr. Fuji. He'd had some sort of an injury, so that's why he was wearing this wrestler's mask. And the commission nearly shut Roy down for it. You know, it was a big mess. Uh, Roy got fined and all this stuff. So it was weird, and, and Pat would talk about that later and say, geez, he fires me for the L.A. U.S. title thing, but then he goes and pulls on something that nearly cost him his entire territory. And, and that's kind of about the time when Roy, uh, well, there was the Buddy Rose incident, another thing, uh, but that's a long story Mike might know, and I, I won't retell it, other than the fact that Buddy was supposed to defend the U.S. title, but I think he showed up and Shire was angry at him, uh, and maybe, uh, according to Rose, he might have had a drink or two, and, and Roy didn't feel he should go out there as U.S. champ, and he said, even though he's in the locker room, so we're going to tell the fans that you just didn't make the card and we're going to have some kind of uh, impromptu match for the U.S. title. But instead of staying in the locker room, Buddy Rose went down to ringside, hijacked the microphone, and told all the fans what was going on. But <clears throat> So a lot of stuff. That didn't involve Pat, but Pat wanted to hear about that one in detail later on. Now, before I pass the mic back over to Glenn, we're getting close to the end of our show. Uh, this past week, obviously, WWF, AEW, everybody's been – paying tribute to Patterson and, you know, having something they would like to say about him, how he was part of their career. Um, I'd like to give you the opportunity, Mike, what is, what is something you'd like to let the listeners know, you know, your feelings about, you know, his passing and, you know, his career in the ring. Well, I'm upset that he died at only what 79. He attributed some of his bad habits of smoking and drinking to all the years on the road with Ray Stevens. So I just wish he hadn't picked that up because we really should have had a brilliant mind like that. Um, I mean, gosh, uh, I, I, from a selfish standpoint, I mean, he, anytime I asked, you know, for house shows that he happened to be at, particularly in California, uh, he would always make sure I got ringside press to go shoot out there, you know, that's when we had no TV cameras. They had to be no TV cameras out there. But I was able to shoot for the magazines, all these great house shows, thanks to Pat. But I want people to remember is he had this life way before the Tri-WF, you know, or WWE now. And because that was so noticeable in those vignettes, you would always have to have a McMahon at the very end of those photo vignettes or the tweet vignettes. And uh, he was much more than that. Incredible wrestler. Incredible mind, incredible human being, uh, did so much to mentor young talent and help people, uh, you know, angles and ideas. And he was just uh, really a heart and soul of the biz. And, uh, you know, it's <coughs> really tough, tough loss. And for someone I wish had been here a few more decades beyond just the mere age of 79. It's time to wrap up this edition of Wrestling Memories Then and Now as we remembered Pat Patterson. A big thank you to Dr. Mike Lano and the grizzled vet Mike McCurdy. I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.